you guys can grab a seat. I'm so glad that there are people here. I'm so used to just looking at a camera for the last couple of months. So this is a really nice treat to have some of my family here. Um, and last week, Jeff uh, was sharing, we, we've been slowly working through the book of Acts. And last weekend, uh, Jeff was sharing out of the beginning of Acts chapter 16 about Paul raising up the next generation with Timothy and he shared this wonderful story uh, that had happened to him that week of a, a bird at the hospital where he was at, kind of finding his hair and, and, and resting in it. And then he got to help that little bird be free. And he kind of tied that to helping the next generation, which I thought was a beautiful analogy. But I think that he missed a really big point in that. And that was that it was the end of the quarantine hair. His quarantine hair had to go because the bird obviously thought it looked like a, a bird's nest. So he has a new haircut, our, our, our sanctuary has a new paint job and a lot of other things. For those of you who can't see, it's remarkable the transformation that has taken place in this box. Yeah, we can, we can clap for that. And I will say that neither Jeff nor I can take credit for any of it. This has been the work of a lot of people working tirelessly, particularly Ben Sabin, uh, Greg Wangler, Mark Strachan, Glenn Owen, who helped us with video before we had cameras of our own, and so many others who have been, you know, Josh uh, Espinoza, who have been helping out and giving time, just donating hours and hours of their time to help bring this box into the 21st century so that it is prepared for the next 70 years of ministry. We've been able to be blessed with using this box for the last 70 years or so, and I'm looking forward to what God is going to do in it over the next 70. Today, we're going to be diving back into Acts chapter 16, so grab your Bible with me. And as you're turning there, I'll just remind you that we are picking up a story that we've been looking at since September of last year. And that's the story of the early churches. They began to take the good news of Jesus Christ and take it to people who had not yet heard it so that the kingdom of God could continue to advance into the world, that, that the good news would reach the ends of the earth. And last week, Paul, uh, uh, Jeff shared about how Paul raised up this one young guy, Timothy, and said, hey, come along with me, learn from me. And let's do this together. But there's another person that's going to be joining this band as Paul and Timothy head out on the second of his missionary journeys. And that's a guy named Silas. Silas is, was a, a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem. And when Paul and Barnabas headed down to Jerusalem from Antioch to get a question answered, namely, what does the larger church say? to those who are suggesting that in order for somebody to take hold of Jesus, you've got to become a Jew, that you've got to accept all of the Jewish laws and customs, and that you have to be circumcised. And they kind of agreed, as the larger church council, that that is not the case, that we are saved by faith alone, not by anything that we can do. And so once that decision was arrived upon, Paul and Barnabas headed back to Antioch, where they were going to begin to disseminate this news, but Silas came with them so that he could kind of confirm what was being said as a representative of the Jewish church. I'm sorry, of the, the Jerusalem church. And then once they got to Antioch, he's like, you know, Paul, I've heard some amazing stories of what happened on your last missionary journey. I'd really love to go with you. And so we are, he, he actually goes with Paul on his second missionary journey. We're going to pick up the story here in Acts chapter 16. Verse 7, but before we do, can we throw the map up on the board here for a moment? Because what's going to happen 
Hopefully it will happen. There we go. Okay, so this is my really high-tech interactive math. You can, you can see that star on the right side of the picture. That's Antioch. That's where Paul and Timothy and Silas begin their journey. And whereas last time they took a boat, this time they're going to start over land. And they're going to go up towards Asia, which is that big pink splotch right there in the middle. That was Paul's intent, is that he and Timothy and Silas would head into Asia because there were a ton of really influential cities there that he wanted to share the gospel with. But for whatever reason, when he came to the border of Asia, he felt like the Holy Spirit said, "Uh uh-uh, don't go here right now, not yet. So instead, he started heading north. Whoop, let's go back. Started heading north, and he was going to go up into this region, Bithynium, and he was going to share up there. Like, okay, well, if I can't go west, let's go north. And he gets to the border there, to that kind of light green section, and again, the Holy Spirit says, nope, not here. So ultimately, this little troop kind of wind their way around the edges of both Asia and, and, and North, you know, North Europe, and they wind up in this place, this port city called Troas. That's where we're going to pick up the story here in verse 7. Actually, we'll begin in verse 8. They passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, after Paul had seen that vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, one of the things I really appreciate about Paul, here's a man who had a plan. He knew what he was called to do. He was going to act on it. He gathered some people together to come with him, and they set out, but he held his plan loosely. It makes me think of, of Proverbs 16, 9, right? In his heart, a man plans his path, but it's the Lord that directs his steps. That's exactly what was happening here. Paul had planned his path. It was going to go right into the heart of Asia to all of these big cities. And when the Holy Spirit said no, he obeyed. And then when he gets, you know, he gets to Troas, God calls him in a vision to go to a completely different continent. And rather than resisting and hemming and hawing and going, well, that wasn't really in the plans, he and the guys jump on a boat and they head across the sea. And let's keep reading here. Verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went to Neapolis, the port city of Neapolis. And from there, they traveled inland to Philippi, which was a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. So Paul finds himself in the probably one of the most important Roman colonies in Macedonia, in this whole region. And while he's there, he's going, okay, God, what do you have for me to do? You've obviously led me here. What do you want me to do? Now, you know how typically on his missionary journeys, we've already seen that there's a habit for Paul. His first thing that he does is he goes into the synagogue because it's in the synagogue that Jews are are gathering to worship And this is not because he's prejudiced. It's not because he chooses Jews over Gentiles. It's because Jews also need to hear the gospel. And they're the ones who have been waiting for a Messiah. And he's coming to share the good news that the Messiah has in fact come. So this is just the lowest hanging fruit. So that would be his typical play is that he would go into the synagogue. However, in this particular city, because it's so far away from Jerusalem... 
there's not enough people to start a synagogue. In fact, according to Jewish custom, you needed to have 10 men to start a synagogue. And there weren't obviously 10 Jewish men in the city. So there was no synagogue. Instead, Paul has to mix it up a little bit. He says, okay, well, I know that there's a place where Jews are gathering to worship, a place of prayer. I know that they put it down somewhere by the river because that's where they can do their ceremonial washings as part of their, their worship. Let's head on down there. So verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So there were a large contingent of women, one of whom being this lady Lydia, who was a Gentile from, um, from Thyatira, who was a seller of purple cloth. And she and her whole household are there. Some of her employees are there. They're gathering to pray. And Paul and Timothy and Silas strike up a conversation with them. And as Paul is so good at doing, he very quickly steers the conversation towards the gospel. And he begins to share the good news that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, God's anointed Redeemer. And that he came and gave his life for them. And that he was raised from the dead, declaring emphatically that he was who he said he was. And he did what he claimed to do. And we read that... The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And this is a really important point that I want to drive home. Paul was obedient to be in that city, to go to that place, and to have that conversation with Lydia. This was a divine appointment that he'd obviously set up with her and her household. But Paul was not the one who saved her. It was the Lord who opened her heart to it so that the seeds of hope that he was planting found purchase in her heart. And I think a lot of times we buy into the false assumption that it's our job to save someone. That we need to preach the gospel in such a way that our, our, our children will embrace it. Or that we need to live such good lives that our parents will ultimately come to have faith in Christ. Or that we need to be such good employees and share the gospel all the time so that other people in our workplace or in our neighborhoods will accept Christ. And while we have a responsibility to share the truth that we have found with humility and respect, it's never our job to save anyone. We don't have that ability. Not even Paul did. It was the Lord that ultimately brought Lydia to the Lord. So the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. Now that word household is a really important one. And hopefully at this point, it's one that's a little familiar to you if you've been part of Lighthouse since the beginning of this year. Because that word household in Greek is the term oikos. And we have been using that word, defining it as your sphere of influence. And oikos is the group of people that God has kind of supernaturally placed around you. And what we see yet again is that Lydia's decision to say yes to Jesus Christ doesn't just affect her. Her sphere of influence is impacted by it. They too hear the gospel message. They too follow her lead. They too give their hearts to Jesus. And so all of them that are there who are hearing that message follow Lydia's lead, and all of them are baptized. We're going to talk a little bit more about oikos and our sphere of influence a little bit later, so let's keep moving. After they were baptized, she invited Paul and Timothy and Silas into her home, and she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And so she persuaded them to come and join her. That was a beautiful divine appointment, but not everything is is sunshine and buttercups in Philippi. 
because it doesn't always go that smoothly, and it's about to go south very quickly. Because once, when Paul and his retinue were planning to go to the place of prayer, they were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. This is obviously an evil spirit. This is one that has kind of either been oppressing or possessing her, and it's one that's been affecting her life. But it's really interesting that that spirit gives her the ability to tell the future, to kind of indicate what's going to happen. And her owners, because this is a day and an age where slavery was accepted, her owners are aware of that spiritual oppression, but they haven't done anything to try to ease that. Instead, they've used it to their own advantage. They have used this woman's suffering for their own financial gain. They've been making money off of it. This woman followed Paul and the rest of the group around shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. In other words, she began to become their, you know, their, their trumpeters who are going ahead of them and letting people know, which you would think would actually be helpful. Like, don't you want somebody to let people know what you are? But the fact of the matter is, she was a disturbance. She was disruptive. She was constantly doing it day after day after day. And it was from this place of oppression that she was doing this. And so eventually Paul gets to the point where he's had enough. And we read that she kept up this for many days. This is verse 18. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And in that moment, the spirit left her. Now, I would suspect that there are some of us in here or some of us who are listening at home. And you automatically write off any kind of conversation about demon possession or spiritual warfare as a pre-post, you know, like a pre-enlightenment explanation for mental illness, right? That, That spiritual warfare is just something that people before we had science used to explain that. But I would suggest that I myself have tasted and seen that there is a spiritual battle going on all around us. Just in the last couple of weeks, as as both Jeff and I have been leaning more into, we need to be sharing the gospel. I have experienced ridiculous amounts of spiritual warfare in my own home, my own heart, and around us. We're seeing the effects of it in our society as this power struggle is taking place. and, And brothers and sisters are tearing at one another and yelling at one another and just the division that's happening. But perhaps the single most powerful example I can give you of spiritual warfare and the fact that this is real happened about 10 years ago. I was living in an apartment down the street in this little community, and I had gotten to know one of my neighbors really well. And my neighbor was somebody whose mother had practiced witchcraft when he grew up. And because we are affected by, by our sphere of influence, for better or for worse, he himself had been exposed to witchcraft. He himself had opened himself up to some of these spirits to come and kind of have their way in him. And as he and I began to have a conversation about Jesus, it very quickly turned to him wanting to take authority over and, and say no more to these spirits that had been tormenting him. And so we began to pray that day. We invited Jesus to come into his heart. And we took authority over that, those spirits. And basically, whenever I pray spiritual warfare, I don't have a, a power in and of myself, but there is power in the name of Jesus to break chains. 
And so I just prayed a very simple prayer. Jesus, I invite you to just anoint this man with your spirit. And if there is any spirit in him that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ, if there is any spirit that has been tormenting him, then in Jesus' name we bind you. You may not have your way any longer. Any agreements he's made, we revoke them in the name of Jesus. Any foothold that you feel like is your right to have, we dissolve it in the name of Jesus. Now we send you to the foot of the cross. Jesus, you determine what you want to do with them. But you may not return. You may not send any other spirits to come back and torment him. And God, I pray that you would send a phalanx of angels to surround this man and protect him. We prayed this prayer and he felt a tremendous amount of freedom out of it. And I thought very little more of it other than the fact that I was so grateful that I got to be used to kind of walk with one of my neighbors. That is until later that night when my wife and I were sleeping. This is before we had kids. Um, and I, I guess it was maybe, Ethan may have been about a year old. But as I was sleeping, suddenly I woke up out of a deep sleep and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. It was like I had a weight on my chest with something over my mouth and something holding my legs down, and I was paralyzed and couldn't even speak. And I, I was in, in terror for a few moments until I, the only word that I could utter out of my mouth, the only word that my lips could form was the name of Jesus. And so all I said was Jesus, and in the moment that I spoke that name, the weight from my chest lifted. The weight from my legs lifted. It was as if whatever was over my mouth was gone and suddenly my tongue could move again. Suddenly I could breathe again. Kathy woke up. We began to pray. There is a very real spiritual battle going on around us. We can blind ourselves to it. We can ignore it. But we do so at our own peril. But we also don't need to be afraid of it. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And there is power in the name of Jesus to break chains. I experienced that 10 years ago. My neighbor experienced that 10 years ago. And some 2,000 years ago, a slave girl experienced that in Philippi. But, as we are, we are all too familiar with, sometimes freedom isn't free. In fact, freedom is seldom free. And when strongholds are broken and territory that the enemy considers to be his is taken back, there are people who have gotten comfortable with the status quo that aren't happy about that. That's what ex happened to Jesus when he came in and he began to speak against the way that the power shift had been and the way that the Jewish leaders were misunderstanding the heart of God. And they killed him for it. And that happened again when this woman was set free. Because her employer, not her employers, her owners had been using her suffering for monetary gain. They'd been benefiting from her suffering. And they weren't excited to see her free because they realized there went their ability to make money off of her fortune-telling abilities. But they were too savvy to think that they could just go into the public square and say, these guys just freed our slave from, from spiritual slavery. They knew that that wouldn't go over well. So instead, they decide to explain it away as they are trying to do a good deed. Because they're trying to expose somebody who has very obviously been uh, fomenting rebellion. And so we read, when the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs that are unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. It's amazing the way that human beings can explain away selfish behavior, can couch selfish actions as others serving, right? We, we, we try to put this others-focused gloss over our own selfishness. And by the way, before we start pointing the finger across the aisle at the other political party, before we start pointing the finger at those who say you've got to be wearing masks or those who say you don't need to wear masks, before we start pointing the finger at people who are on the opposite side of all of this kind of racial tension that we're experiencing, we must look at our own hearts. Before we can start plucking out the piece of sawdust in our neighbor's eye, we need to look at the log in our own eye because we are all guilty of this in one way or the other. We are all guilty of making decisions that are self-serving but couching them in ways that are supposedly others-serving. And we're so good at this, we don't even realize we're doing it. Now, some of us are doing it simply because we're scared. I will confess that there are some moments where I've posted things on social media that were more out of a fear of being silent than really feeling like the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart. I got to say something. And so I say something. I throw it out there to, to, to appear woke because people are looking. People are expecting. Eric, you always talk. What are you going to say? Now, there are certainly some things that God has laid on my heart that I needed to put words into, and I've shared those with you, but there are moments where my greatest motivation for saying something, and by the way, they they were good things, They they were said with a desire to be helpful, but they were said underneath it all with this fear that people might think differently of me if I didn't speak, so I gotta say something. What am I gonna say? My motivation was mixed, so I recognize it in myself. And I think that if we stopped for even a moment, we would recognize that sometimes the ways that we fight, sometimes the things that we say are more self-serving than they are others-serving. They are more self-love than they are others-love. And we need to start there before we can start pointing the finger at others out there. That's not to say that everybody out there is doing it with perfect motives. They're not. But let's not be part of the problem. So, the owners of this slave girl drag her, drag Paul and Silas before the public magistrates, the Roman rulers in that place. And they say, these guys are stirring up rebellion. And as so often happens, all of the crowd, many of whom probably didn't even understand what was going on, but they sensed blood in the water. They jumped on board and suddenly there was a mob of people demanding that these rabble-rousers be arrested and beaten and tried and all that other stuff. And because the magistrates, whether they felt like Paul and Silas were guilty or they simply wanted to appease the mob, which is probably more likely, they went along with it. They said, you're right. They need to be punished. So they stripped Paul and Silas. They beat them until their backs were bloody and bruised. And then they put them in jail and they clapped irons on their wrists and they put their feet in stocks, which are just big wooden apparatuses that hold their legs in place. And they put armed guards to watch over them. 
And this is where we find Paul and Silas, because they had the audacity to free a woman from her bondage. Now I want to ask you a question. Imagine for a moment that you had tasted and seen that God was good, that you had experienced freedom in Christ, and you wanted to share that freedom with others. And so you left everything that you knew. You left your church, you left your home, you left the comfort of your community and where you like to get your meals, and you went to another country. But as you were going there, the Holy Spirit said, ah, 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 not here, and ultimately led you to a completely different continent. And as you're on that continent, you're just kind of saying, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Or take the reins, however, you know, Jesus, move my sandals. And you find yourself directed into this marketplace, and there's a woman that is obviously in bondage, and you free her from that bondage, and for that you are beaten, publicly humiliated, and thrown in jail. How would you feel? Would you feel upset? Would you feel that this isn't fair? Would you begin to feel sorry for yourself? Maybe you'd begin to question whether you really heard God correctly. Did he really say to come here? Or is this his way of saying this was a closed door? Maybe you would start asking whether or not God was even there. How, how could you let this happen? We're serving you. Did you just abandon us? I just wonder how we would respond if we found ourselves in the same situation. But what I find really interesting is the way that Paul and Silas do respond. Let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 25. Because this is the way that Paul and Silas do respond. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas have experienced all of that. They followed the Holy Spirit from their homes to a completely different continent, totally changed their plans, were sharing the gospel message, freed a woman from spiritual slavery, were beaten and thrown in jail for it, and instead of feeling sorry for themselves, instead of going, oh, woe is me, instead of questioning God and asking, where the heck are you? They're worshiping him. They're singing praises to him which is a radically different response than many of us would probably feel. When our circumstances don't match what we expect, which is often the case in life, our natural knee-jerk response is to feel upset, and to feel put upon. Their response was to look beyond their circumstances to the one who stood above it. And rather than ask him questions, they worshipped him. There's something beautiful about singing in the midst of the storms of life. Because sometimes we don't even have the words to know how to respond. Sometimes we get discouraged. I know I have been. I started this whole season of quarantine and all that kind of stuff with so much energy because change is exciting. I hit a wall about two weeks ago. I don't know about anybody else. I had a conversation with a bunch of pastors on Wednesday and we began to, to compare notes almost all of us to a person are feeling exhausted and wrung out. Because this snowstorm has become, winter has become, is this going to be an ice age? Is this going to be a really long thing? Is this ever going to end? And we're exhausted. And in the midst of that, my knee-jerk reaction is to feel sorry for myself. And yet... Paul and Silas 
practice an age-old response to when you feel discouraged, and that is to worship. And to even lean, when you don't have the words of your own to say, to lean on others' words of worship. Lord, I trust you. Right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Or things as simple as, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Does Jesus love me? Yes, Jesus loves me. I know because the Bible tells me so, right? Things as simple as that. I find myself going back to the songs that I learned as a child. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you. you. These are words that just pour from my lips because my parents modeled them for me. And they're trapped in there. And when I reach the end of myself, that's when those words, those songs pour out of me. And they're like a trellis that holds me up out of the mud so that I can begin to get sunlight. And I can begin to get oxygen. And my life, my soul can begin to breathe again. And that's what Paul and Silas do. They sing, they pray, they worship God in the midst of that jail cell. But their songs aren't just for them. Their songs reverberate beyond their little cell to the cells all around them. To men and women who are also imprisoned. Who have given up hope. And their songs become like a light in the darkness. By the way, that's how we're supposed to live. We are supposed to be light bringers into a world that right now is pretty dark. There's a lot of people who are really discouraged. There's a lot of people who are wondering, is this the end? Is this how this country ends? Are we, we're just, we can't say anything without making people angry, and there's so much division. And it's not going to end anytime soon because we've got an election coming up in November. Holy moly, this is going to get more painful. And more people are going to die from this virus. And we don't know what what to believe because we're getting mixed messages. Ah! And into the midst of that, we get to be a people who have tasted and seen that God is good. And that he stands above our circumstances. And that he even works through our circumstances. And the way that we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the way that we follow him so that we won't grow weary and lose heart, that affects the people around us. Certainly affected that captive audience that night. But none of them could have anticipated what was going to happen next. Because suddenly, verse 26, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now that is an act of God, right? Paul and Silas had nothing to do with that. That was 100% God showing off. Now, the shaking of the ground wakes the jailer up. Apparently, he's the only one who can sleep. Probably because he's the only one whose life isn't on the line. Or is it? Because when he woke up, he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword to take his own life because he knew that a Roman guard who loses the people under his protection, his life is as good as forfeit. And this guard goes, I am going to be dragged before the magistrates and publicly executed. And I don't want to bring humility, sorry, I don't want to bring humiliation upon my family and upon my own name. So I'm going to take my life. I'm going to go the honorable way out and take myself out. But before he can kill himself, 
Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Nobody's left. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and asked them a very interesting question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't it interesting that the captor is asking the captives what he needs to do to be saved? And the only reason I can think That he's even asking this question. One, because the jail cells are open, but he's relieved that nobody's gone. So the circumstances in that moment. But two, here's a guy who had heard, at least secondhand, maybe even seen it himself. He heard that this demon-possessed girl was crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you how you can be saved. And that little piece of information got lodged in the back of his mind. Even though when he originally heard it, he laughed it off as ridiculous. These guys are nothing. And whatever petty God they claim to serve is nothing. And he ignored it. Until suddenly, something happened where he was no longer feeling in control of his life. And I think that that's how life often goes. People will hear the gospel message, but they won't pay a whole lot of attention to it because in the moment they really don't think that they need help. They feel like they're in control. I mean, who's going to ask for a savior when you don't think you need saving? I was a Newport Beach lifeguard for 10 years. I will tell you, there was a lot of times where I would see somebody being dragged out in a riptide. And so I would jump down off of my tower and I would run out there, put my fins on, jump in the water, swim out to them and offer the buoy. And their first response would be, I don't need that. I'm good. And then they would continue to try to swim against the current while they're being pulled backwards out into the ocean. And they're becoming more and more tired. And in a few moments, they're going to drown. They just don't realize it yet. And I'm offering them an implement of their salvation, and they don't want it. Now, there are other times where I would get out there, and the people knew that they needed it. And they were so grateful to grab a hold of it. And then I could pull them out of the riptide and save them. This man had heard that these guys were servants of the Most High God, but he didn't think he needed what they were offering. It seemed ridiculous to him until God got a hold of him, until his circumstances became so overwhelming that he realized he really didn't have it all under control, until he realized how desperately he needed a Savior. And in that moment, he became the captive audience. What must I do to be saved, he asks Paul and Silas. But here's the beauty of the gospel. There's nothing you have to do to take hold of it. Jesus has already done everything. The reason that that cross, that symbol of Roman torture, has become a symbol of freedom to us is because like that lifeguard buoy, he hung on that cross. Not that particular one, that's just a symbolic of it. But he hung on the cross, his life given for our life. He has paid it all. And like the lifeguard that swims out through the riptide to the person who is drowning, he offers them the implement of their salvation. All we need to do is wrap our arms around it and accept it as a gift freely given and then just hold on because he is the one who saves us. We are not. If we try to save ourselves and it's like D swimming in his little infinite pool that just the water's pushing and he's not going anywhere but he keeps swimming until he's tired. 
Or you're like somebody in a riptide who's trying to swim into shore and you're getting more and more tired until finally you succumb because the riptide is always more powerful than you are. But Jesus paid it all and there's nothing that we have to do to save ourselves. He's done it all. All we need to do is accept that gift by faith. And so Paul and Silas's response to the question of what must I do to be saved, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe, that's it. I've used the analogy of a chair, all right? And I, I could say I could, this chair will hold me up. I believe it, but until I'm willing to sit in it, that belief means nothing. Same way we could say that a lifeguard, somebody saying, I believe that you could pull me out of this riptide but their belief means nothing until they take hold of the buoy because that's when the lifeguard is able to pull them to safety. What must you do to be saved? Just believe. Embrace him, not just as your savior, but as your Lord. And and embracing him as your Lord, by the way, means being willing to submit to his lordship, being willing to obey as a disciple following his discipler modeling your life after his. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. Which is why he gives us his Holy Spirit to help begin to change us, to begin to shape us in his image. But we can't do anything to save ourselves. So believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Now there's that word again, household. Oikos. You and your whole sphere of influence. Now, I want to be really clear here. This guy saying yes to Jesus does not automatically save his whole household. It's not like one person in a house has to give their hearts to Jesus and everybody automatically gets that. Rather, what Paul is referring to is the fact that when this man gives his heart to Jesus, just like when Lydia gave her heart to Jesus, those who are influenced by her will also be exposed to the gospel message. They will also have the choice, and the vast majority of them will follow. About 45 years ago, uh, Billy Graham was given a, 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 a talk on this very passage in one of his uh, big crusades. And in it, he began to explain how they had done research on the effects of somebody coming to know Jesus and what that ends up doing to their families later on. Can we throw the quote up on the board here? This is what it said. He found that in homes in which the father came to faith in Christ first, the entire family came to faith in 60% of the cases. When the wife came to the Lord first, 40 to 50% of the families all accepted Christ. And in the families in which a child came to Christ first, 25% of them saw their entire family become Christians. I should mention, this is in America. The single most individualistic culture that has ever existed on this planet. Paul and Silas were ministering in a different social context. A more social, tribal context. Where when the 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 man of the house came to know Christ. It was a foregone conclusion that everybody would follow his lead. And even when the wife would come to know Christ, unless her husband pushed back hard, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that it would percolate through the household. It happened with Lydia, and it happens with this man. Not because his faith saved everybody, but because they were part of his sphere of influence. And the choices that he made would ultimately affect the choices that others would make. 
So what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household, your whole oikos, your whole sphere of influence. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Notice that the gospel shared with all of them. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his whole oikos were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household, his whole sphere of influence. Well, when it was daylight, the magistrate sent the officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. You can go. Leave in peace. But Paul said to the officers, wait a minute, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. Let them come themselves and escort us out. And I'm left going, wait a minute, Paul. Isn't this exactly what you wanted? Didn't you want to be released? Isn't this what you were praying for last night? You were trusting that God would release you? The prison doors open, the chains fall off. You don't leave, but God is still releasing you. Isn't this what you want? Not necessarily. Because remember, Paul and Silas were publicly humiliated. They were publicly beaten. That was not only a spot on their names, but they besmirched the name of Jesus publicly in Philippi. And Paul and Silas know if they don't speak up, if they don't push back, if there's not a public retraction, then this will not only be a black spot on the name of Jesus moving forward in this city and the surrounding areas, but it will make things so much more difficult for any believers in that city. It will make things so much more difficult for the church in that city. So no, we're willing to stand up and we're willing to push back and we're willing to say, you publicly humiliated us, beat us, threw us in jail without trial, you need to publicly apologize. You need to publicly retract that. In the same way that if somebody were to post uh, on the front page of every newspaper uh, libelous claims about somebody, and then the very next day they post a retraction like deep, deep in the newspaper. I know nobody ever reads those things anymore, but imagine that, you know, that they post a retraction so deep that no one's going to see it. The person whose name and whose ministry has been called into question would push back and say, no, 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 no. That was a public denunciation of me. I want you to publicly apologize. And sure enough, the officers reported to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and by the way, you might be able to treat citizens of another country poorly. You might be able to get away with that, with just regular folk. But a Roman citizen had rights. Ooh, they're Roman citizens. Okay, now we've got to treat them differently. So they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters, and they encouraged them. And then they left. Now, we just plowed through a lot. Jeff covered five verses last week. That was like 45 Not that we're keeping score or anything like that, right? But there's a number of things that I want to just point out here as we get ready to go into a time of worship. Several things that I want to remind us of. Number one, if we want to be used by God, then we need to hold our plans loosely. In his heart, a man plans his path, but it's the Lord that directs our steps. 
And if we say, God, I want you to use me, then we need to be willing for him to change up our schedule, our game plan. Right now, today, I was scheduled with my family to be in Washington on San Juan Island. Last week, we were supposed to be in Yellowstone. We didn't go. God had other plans for us. On Friday, I got to go fishing with my kids. It was glorious. And then the moment we were docking, I got a call from my wife that my mother-in-law had fallen and split her head open and banged her knee so badly that she can't even walk on her own. I who wants so desperately to be outward focused and going and doing things and and being a minister have been called right now to be a nursemaid, quite honestly, to help her to the bathroom. That's what I get to do. It's my privilege. If you have plans, be willing to submit them because sometimes God says, I got something different for you to do. And if we're not willing to release that, then we are going to find ourselves fighting against God. Secondly, Sometimes the most important appointment of the day are those along-the-way conversations that you don't even anticipate, that you didn't go looking for. Maybe it's a conversation in the checkout stand when you're standing, let's call it six feet apart from the person behind you, right? Or at the park when your dogs are playing and you just happen to be interacting with somebody standing next to you. And the conversation moves to to how people are doing, and you find that that person's really struggling. May we be the kind of people who are willing to have our days and our schedules interrupted. May we be the kind of people who are prepared at all times to give an answer for the hope that we have in us, but to do so with humility and respect, not banging people over the heads with our superior knowledge or our, our, you know, whatever. Not, Not lording it over them. May we be interruptible. Jesus was busy. Even in this time of slowdown, we are all very busy, but may we be interruptible. Thirdly, we are at war. Our world is at war. There is a spiritual battle that rages around us. We can choose to ignore it, but we do so at our own peril. Or... We can recognize the fact that there is an enemy who is seeking to steal our hope, kill our joy, and destroy our faith. And he's looking not only to do that to us, but to everyone around us. But we don't have to fear him, because greater is the one who's in us than he is in the world. And there is a power in the name of Jesus to break the chains of bondage in our society, to break the chains of bondage in our community, to break the chains of bondage in our own hearts. It has to start here. The most powerful position that we can take in order to stand against the attack of the enemy is on our knees in prayer. Right? And the reason I go onto my knees is it because sometimes the posture of our body leads the posture of our hearts. But there is power in prayer and there is power in the name of Jesus to break those chains of bondage. Fourthly, even in the darkest hours, when we feel like all hope is lost, those are often the times when God calls us to shine the brightest. 
But it's only going to happen if we keep our eyes fixed on him. If we, like the rest of the world, start getting fixated on our circumstances, start getting worried about everything that comes out in the news, and there's so much bad news. If we get fixated on every little fight that is being fought, and every disagreement, and we just have to jump in on everyone. By the way, guilty, right? If we find ourselves dragged into that, as opposed to fixing our, eye, our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we remind ourselves that even He, the Son of God, suffered, then it'll help us in our suffering. And as we keep our eyes fixed on him, people will be drawn to the light that his spirit produces in us, to the hope that we have in us. And they will begin to ask, what is wrong with you that you can be smiling in the midst of the storms? Finally, I just want to remind you that your decision to follow Jesus, and there are some of you, whether you're in here or you're, you're watching at home, there are some of you who have not yet made that decision about whether or not to say yes to Jesus. And you think that it just affects you and your life. May I remind you, it does not. The decision that you have before you to say yes or to no to taking the buoy of faith, to holding on to Jesus and allowing him to have his way in your life, affects so many more people because we are surrounded, every single one of us, as much as you think that you're an isolated individual living in America and everything you choose only affects you, you have a sphere of influence and the decisions you make affect them as well. So you cannot simply look at this question of whether or not you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, whether or not you want to say yes to him, but it affects those around you as well. And there is nothing that you have to do to earn it. You messed up? Good. You're in good company. So have I. And that's what makes good news so good, is that there is nothing that we need to do to earn it. We simply need to accept this gift of grace that is freely offered to us. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. Because there are some of us who have been swimming so hard against the current that we are exhausted, and yet we think we need to save ourselves. And right now, Jesus is sitting beside us with a buoy extended to us, a buoy of grace saying, just take hold. Let me pull you out of this. Let me get you dried off so that you can go and let other people know that they don't have to save themselves. And if that's you, if you're exhausted treading water and trying to keep your head above water, may I simply invite you to accept that gift of grace. And it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you. I accept the gift of grace that you purchased for me on the cross. I choose to follow you. Not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. Have your way in me. There's nothing magical about any of those prayers. It is simply an act of acknowledgement. And you don't even have to get baptized in order to be saved, but baptism is the natural response 
to publicly declare that internal decision. And so if you have made that choice, please don't keep it a secret. Please let Jeff or myself know. You can email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and let us know so that we can be praying with you, so that we can come alongside of you because the enemy is going to come hard at you. The enemy will come hard when you try to give over a portion of your life that he considers to be his. He will attack it. We want to walk with you and hold you up through that. Please let us know. And if you want to get baptized, please let us know because I can't wait. Now that we get to be back in the box, we got the baptism and I want to use it. Also, um, if you just want to respond as a declaration of trust and we want to give, in here, we're not going to pass a plate or anything. There's some boxes in the back. When you're leaving, you can drop any prayer requests or you can drop any offering there. And if you want to give online, you just go to lighthousecommunity.com and there's a, a button on the front page to give and you can give that way. But now let's just respond as a people who have tasted and seen that God is good. That he loves us, not because of anything we've done, but simply because we are his. He created us for him, and he's invited us to join him in being his ambassadors of hope. Let's worship our God together.
have to sit down. They can't see you. <laughs> You're not blocking anybody's line of sight, Charlie. Hey, um, I, I have missed having some of you here. And I know that the vast majority of you are staying at home right now. And that probably is wise. But at the same time, know you're missed. Um, I want to remind you that for those of you who feel comfortable, we're going to just gather uh, down at Harper Park at noon. Bring your own meal. Bring your own blanket. We're going to just kind of hang out for those who want to. Um, the sun has finally come out, which is wonderful. And so if you want to join us, please do. I also was reminded by Jeff that there's a, such a long list of other names that I forgot to just thank for all the work they've done. Robin, Alini, and Kilby, who did the painting. There are so many of you who have made this box really wonderful to come and, and be in. But I want to remind us that this is just a box. We are the church. And so now it's our opportunity to go be the church. So Lighthouse, I love you. It's really good to see many of you. Now go be the church. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.